Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming Transforming truth truth to power. 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 One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. We liberate ourselves from a vocabulary which now cannot bear the weight of reality. practice in Nazi America 
against black people in this country, day in and day out, north, south, east, and west, you shouldn't open up your white mouth about Germany or South Africa or Portugal or any other country on this earth. In the FBI's own words, they wanted to discredit, to stop the rise of a black messiah. That was the fear of the FBI, so that there would not be a Mao Mao, in their words, uprising in the United States. I decided to focus uh, quite specifically on black women, uh, uh, because somehow they feared, it seems to me, the movement would continue to grow and develop, uh, particularly with the leadership uh, and the involvement of, of, of black women. Uh, to say white people have historically acted in X way, or white people are blind to the problems of race and racism. Even when you talk about cases like Trayvon Martin, where you have all these whites who are, you know, many are in support, but some are on the fence. Well, we don't know if race plays an issue. When black people identify those things and say, no, race is clearly a central issue here, they're the ones that have for race. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's, and then mystify the whole process so it seems like you're not doing that. Oh, glory, glory. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody nobody else can do this for. No document can do this for. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. One day when the glory comes, it will be out. It will be out. Oh, one day when the war is won, to Janice. Thank you and welcome to the 2015 season 
of our common ground. We especially want to thank our returning listeners and fans, um, and for those of you who are new to us, we welcome you. As we go into this weekend, um, marking the birthday of Martin Luther King, we want to remind you the meaning of the King holiday. We celebrate the life and legacy of a man who brought hope and healing to America. We commemorate him as well the timeless values that he teaches us even now through his example. The values of courage, truth, justice, compassion, dignity, humility, and service that so radiantly define Dr. King's character and empowered his leadership. On this holiday, we commemorate the universal, unconditional love, forgiveness, and nonviolence that empowered his revolutionary spirit. We're calling on you at our common ground tonight as you move into this into this holiday to commemorate this holiday by making your personal commitment to serve humanity with a vibrant spirit and unconditional love that was his greatest strength, which empowered all of the great victories of leadership. And with our hearts open to this spirit of unconditional leadership, we can achieve the beloved community of Martin Luther King's dream. And we hope that you will use it with your children and your family and your community to join in a movement that has begun in this country. We are in the midst of a movement to upend white supremacy and tonight at our common ground. We're going to be talking about upending white supremacy as a challenge in our thinking about our outrage of what is in front of us. In this 2015 season of broadcasting, which is our 31st year at Our Common Ground, we ask you to take up the mantle and the spirit of Sankofa. It can mean either the word in the Akan language of Ghana that translates into English to reach back and get it, or to a better notion or more clear notion that I have developed in putting this language into my life to look, to seek, and to fetch it that which is lost. We are in the midst of a movement to upend white supremacy in this country. We ask you to join the thousands of people across the country acting in response to the unpunished killings of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Rika Boyd, Eric Gardner, Renisha McBride, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and so many more unarmed black people who have lost their lives to police or vigilante violence or lynching and have taken to the streets to proclaim that black lives matter. So at our common ground in this season, 
while this is a powerful proclamation all its own, it can now be strengthened by a vision that you create of what it will take to make those lives really matter so that black lives matter without a hashtag and in reality. Thank you so very much for being with us. Before we begin, we want to, uh, we have one of our listeners has a birthday today. We want to throw out a big shout out to um, to Pat on her birth today. And we want to thank her for her listenership and her for her interest in this program. I have certainly missed being here. Um, talk is a way, is, is is a community therapy, and we enlist your support in making us more visible in our communities, especially in our activist community, um, to join us each Saturday night at 10 p.m. I also want to, and didn't get a chance to reach out to all of you, to wish you for the new year enough. We are a people who can live and thrive just by enough. Tonight at Our Common Ground, in the spirit of Sankofa upending white supremacy, our guest in our first hour is Ruby Nell Sales, and you know her. She is the founder of Spirit House Project, a social activist, a scholar, a public theologian, and educator. She's a highly trained, experienced, and deeply committed social activist, scholar, administrator, manager, and educator in the area of civil, gender, and other human rights. In our second hour, uh, a new Our Common Voice coming with us tonight, Max Parthas. He is the host of the New Abolitionist on Black Talk Radio Network. In addition to his broadcasting, he is a word warrior, a spoken word artist. He's an activist, a freedom fighter, a free thinker, and abolitionist living in Columbia, South Carolina. And we are going to talk to them tonight about upending premacy. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you'd like to join the broadcast by phone and listen in, you certainly can do that. For those of, of you who are listening on your computers and like, would like to join our open chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG. And it is my pleasure and my honor once again to bring to you at our microphones in this sacred black truth place, Ms. Ruby Nell Sales. Ruby Nell, Happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year, everyone. Glad to be and here. What a pleasure. Well, it's certainly... Um, an honor to have you back. You are one of our witness witnesses from the bridge. And I do want to note to some of you who may not know, our witness from the bridge from our of our common ground, Florence L. Tate, made her transition in December mm. and she is now an ancestor, an honored 
and well-earned ancestor. Uh, Ruby, one of the things that I want to talk to you about in this upending white supremacy is the role that we all play in defining who we are as warriors. Well, I think that our journey in this country, language is very important. Our journey in this country has been a journey where we have continuously and victoriously contested the names and images that white people have placed on the backs of African Americans. And it's very important for us to understand that from the very moment of captivity, European Americans sought to recreate African Americans, Africans, not in terms of who we were, but in the image of whiteness. And that meant that they sought to minimize our humanity, degrade our histories, reduce our relationships with each other, and make us bow down and participate in the idolatry of worshiping whiteness. So black people in this country have contested that, and we have been very successful in not being what Ralph Ellison says, the creation of white men, but we have created ourselves, even in the fires of the greatest Uh, oppression, we have created ourselves. We have made families. We have proven that we are fully human. We have survived. And not only have we survived, but we have thrived. So our name is Victory. It's important for us to understand that we have, you know, we oftentimes say, I wonder why do white people hate black people so much? We oftentimes wonder why do they find it necessary to shoot someone 132 times? Well, the big secret is they fear us because no matter what they did to us, we kept on surviving and we kept on coming. And the secret is that they don't see themselves as superior. They wonder what kind of human beings are African Americans, that they have survived, they have thrived, they have reproduced, they have created, they have succeeded. Who are these incredible people? And they see us as superhuman, and they see themselves as so much less than what we are because they know had it been done to them, they would not have survived. So the violence is rooted in an inferiority complex and a fear that they could never be as black people have been, a people who, as Sterling Brown says, that you shackled us in chains, you put us in ghettos, but strong people kept coming, strong people kept coming. We kept coming. We kept coming. You know, in in, in 1966, along with, uh, as we moved to the King holiday on Monday, and I've been thinking about this a lot, along with Asa LeBrandoff and Bayard, 
Rustin and other organizers, they released a now all but forgotten freedom budget for all Americans, which included full employment, universal health care, and good housing for all. And in this budget, Dr. King wrote that it was essential that the Negro are able to make further progress. It is essential if we are to maintain a social peace. It is a political necessity. So in when he moved this civil rights movement along to espouse this view toward the end of his life, acknowledging that civil and voting rights were critical but merely partial victory in the struggle for complete equality. Yes. One of the things that he he proposed, and it was a call for police reform, and in that call he said, and many people might not realize that, that this hashtag uh, Black Lives Matter came out of the King-led movement. He said it is vital for the defeat of the racist system that black lives matter and advance, that we cannot undo racism in America without confronting our country's history of exploitation and the dehumanization of the Negro. Now, a lot of people don't, don't realize that. So... One of the questions I have for you, and I know that you have given, you've done a lot of writing, you've done a lot of teaching and organizing around this whole concept of Black Lives Matter. My question is, where do we begin? Because Black Lives Matter, so little in so much of this system of white supremacy, where do we begin? First of all, we begin with our own perceptions of ourselves and our own understanding of the totality of what we mean when we say black lives matter. What we mean is that we have a right to participate and benefit from the fruits of this country, from the fruits of our labor. We say that black lives matter in a society that says that black people are disposable waste. I keep talking about a capitalist technocracy. This is really important because in industrialism, there were factory jobs for black people. In technocracy, there is very little use for black people, and therefore black lives do not matter. But this is not new. From the time of enslavement, and captivity, we were a people who asserted the fundamental statement that black lives matter. And so we resisted the, 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 the desire and the brutal institutionalization of enslavement and the attempts of white people to reduce us to things. We asserted in the face of that that black lives matter. All social movements that black people have created in this country predicate themselves on the deep resistance to the notion that black people are second-class people whose lives are irrelevant. And so we have persistently 
consistently and victoriously declared that our lives matter and we've made them matter. So the thing that we have to begin with is a fundamental understanding of our long assertion, our unwillingness to bow down and be something less than a human being and to insist that our lives matter, that our children's lives matter, that even when we were enslaved, African Americans declared and were willing to die, some of them, to read their title clear. In other words, a, thir- a thirst for literacy, the, the, the absolute refusal to believe that only white people could read. Black people have always been filled with the confidence, and we have gone all the way to the cross sometimes with for the understanding that black lives matter, matter. Emmett Till life, life matter, Mary McLeod Bethune life, life mattered, your grandmother's life mattered, my grandmother's life mattered. Black people have refused historically and successfully to be irrelevant. And so when we talk about Black Lives Matter today, we're saying that we refuse to allow our children to be 358% more unemployed than white young people. We refuse to let people tear down our schools and privatize education so that our children will not be educated and create future generations of African-American young people who are powerless. So we say black lives matter, not only in the streets of Ferguson, not only in the streets of Staten Island, but black lives matter, not only in America, but throughout the world. That is the struggle. That has been the crux of struggles of African people of African descent all over the world. We have doggedly refused to say that we are less than human beings and that we are disposable waste. So even when there was no evidence that our work would bear any fruit, our parents and grandparents kept on seeding generations, even when there was no evidence that their work would bear any fruit in the rigid zones of segregation in this country and northern uh, segregation. Black people kept on seeding generations because they knew that black lives matter. Well, you know, all of my questions um, lead to a particular place. And one of the concerns that I have is that if this Black Lives Matter movement is to sustain and nurture itself, Mm -hmm. how do we begin to parcel out the responsibilities and the accountabilities for looking at a system of white supremacy, economics, education, um, welfare, public welfare, public health, uh, public housing, how do we begin to parcel out the accountability and the responsibility of people to reach the masses, to begin to organize across this country? Because that, I mean, 
there was there was a a, a, a group that shut down a highway here in Boston yesterday morning, and they were calling themselves Black Lives Matter. I never heard of them, never saw them. People were calling me and saying, do you know those people? I don't know those people. But I'm talking about the mothers who, the, the parents of the potential Michael Browns. I'm talking about the parents, who, the black parents who struggle to go to work, to do the eight hours or even the 12 hours if they get the overtime. So they never get an opportunity to really communicate effectively, even if they felt that it was safe to do so, about their child's education or at the school board or at the city council. How, who is going to do and make Black Lives Matter real? First of all, the revolution will not happen on social media. It won't happen in emails. Struggle is an eye-to-eye, hand-to-hand movement. When you ask people to be involved in a movement, you're asking them to put something on the line, whether it's their jobs, whether it's their lives, and you can't do that by simply sending out emails and doing social media, and people become secondary to the process. It's very important. There is no easy way. It's about knocking on doors. It's about stop having offices in white commercial zones where no one sees, where the office is not accessible and the community cannot have access to resources why should the community support you when they don't know you? We're you know, you just hit something, of- Ruby. Um, there is a body of law which protects and affirmatively furthers opportunity for disabled people. And it's mostly used in housing, but it's used in a lot of venues. And it's called Section 504. Mm-hmm. And in Section 504, there is a clause which says that a party is responsible to make reasonable accommodation for disabled people to be able to have a quality of life that they define. I'll give you an example. Um, a disabled person lives in an apartment, and that person is deaf. The housing provider or the owner of that place is required to accommodate that disability. Why is it that we are not looking at solutions based on accommodating the disability in interred by white supremacy on black people. First of all, now you know very well that for the last 30 years, black people, the movement's history was manipulated, and Bayard Rustin, whom you name, I must say, was a culprit in this situation because he played a very vital role in moving the movement from direct action to electoral politics. And that had a significant and devastating consequences 
on the fate of African Americans and our ability to struggle and our understanding of struggle. When you cut out, when he, when direct action became irrelevant, basically it decimated grassroots voices and put the power out of the hands of people into the hands of politicians. That was a very devastating move for African Americans. Another thing that happened was that those of us who entered into certain positions, we thought that the movement existed for our careers. And we began to move away from our people. We are one of the few people in in history who desert entire communities and leave those communities barren and disabled while running to buttress the economics of white communities, thinking that their houses are better than ours. Generations of African Americans post-civil rights deserted their communities and never looked back and felt that it was better to teach at Harvard than it was to teach at Spelman. My friends often would say to me, but these college, black colleges are so backwards. And I would say, and white colleges are so white supremacist. If you can work at a white college, surely we can struggle together at a black college. Another thing that happened was a whole generation of African-American young people grew up with the notion that older black people, including their parents, were welfare queens, deadbeat fathers. And to be quite honest, this is manifesting itself in the movement today, where there is, in many ways, a very subliminal disrespect of black elders. I'm working with young people every day trying to break down the wall of suspicion. The other thing that happened is that we abandoned the welfare of our young people, and we left them to swim in the turbulent waters of white supremacy while telling them that they lived in a post-racial world. And many of them drowned, and they are very angry about that. And we have to look at the fact that we did abandon young people, that we did turn them over to people to teach them who we know did not love them. And they suffered from that. We allowed the black school culture to be decimated under the pretense of the segregation. And black students were bussed away from their school culture, away from their mascots, away from their communities, and did not know black teachers, did not come in contact with black adults until they came home after school. So how, without that intimacy, you cannot deal with the disability of white supremacy because white supremacy seeks to destroy the intimacy and create wedges between African-Americans, whether through class, age, religion, all of the ways in which we are wedged. We did not do a very good job of asking a fundamental question, what does it mean to be free? 
And as Martin Luther King said, and where do we go from here? We thought that the expression of freedom for us, the highest expression, was to have a king in the seat, on the throne, in the White House. And I literally mean in the White (laughs) House. We also missed the point of Martin Luther King, whom we like to raise up all the time. He was calling for a revolution. He was saying, let's build a new house called the World House. Let's not integrate into a burning house because it will burn us alive. So we did not understand that. So we wanted to be, this is what's really ironical and a little weird, that we thought that we wanted so much to be like Pharaoh, whom we had just fought with all our might. We got out of Egypt, and then we wanted to go right back into Egypt. And this time we didn't go as slaves. We went voluntarily. So there, And so we allowed the black community to be vulnerable to gentrification, which creates in the black community a kind of domestic diaspora, which fragments our relationships, which, which dismantles any core foundation that the black community had. And we didn't call ourselves communities anymore. We called ourselves hoods. I personally mm-hmm. have a problem with calling our community hoods because it parallels this whole notion of black people as by nature criminals, black people by nature as hoodlums. And so we decimated our own self-image, and we allowed a culture to surround our young people that was basically disrespectful, that was basically misogynist, that had no racial loyalty, and we lied to ourselves and pretended that it was revolutionary without admitting that the that the spoken that the rap uh, that the, those revolutionary early artists had been outmaneuvered by the predators of black culture who created and instituted a hootlum culture. How are you going to have organizing when your culture is predicated on on being hootlums? What what kind Mm -hmm. of organizing are you going to have when you're the only people in the world who get on the world stage and call your mamas, your sisters, and your aunties B.I.T. and whores? These are, these might sound like minor things, but they are impediments to the spirit that one needs to have in order to be involved in social change. So we find ourselves not only having to rebuild the black community, but having to rebuild our lives because even as we were in in a world of delusion, lured early on by Richard Nixon's call for that transformed the movement that transferred the emphasis of the movement from struggle to black capitalism, and we bought into all of that. We allowed the Southern strategy 
where that was kicked off by Ronald Reagan in Philadelphia, Mississippi, at the site where Squarner Cheney had been killed. And we didn't say a word. We said we were in a post-racial America. And now we are paying the cost. And the fundamental question that we must struggle with is what did it mean for us to gain the world and lose the souls of blackness? You know, recently you were on a panel where one of the leading white anti-racism <laughs> advocates indicated to you and other members on the panel that older people, older black people need to get out of young black people's way. Yes. I, and you I know was, my black female blood was livid. <laughs> you you wrote that the statement right. rattled your female ancestors and sister bones. And I, I think that one of the things that we need to think about as I listen to you talk is that I'm I'm envisioning that we have this fence in front of us as we try to define and frame how we move forward in upending white supremacy, that we have to be clear about who we are to each other. That's what I get from you, how we love each other, and that foremost, I mean, I, I grew up in a family, even if you didn't like Aunt Jessica, if somebody came at Aunt Jessica... You were like a cougar to protect the family. Right. And I get a sense that uh, we are not doing that, and behind this fence, we are not doing that. Uh-huh. And that we, and as you write, we need each other to stay whole and stay wide awake. We need their, we need the radicalism of new notions and strategies for this upending white supremacy and making Black Lives Matter. But we need to keep sturdy, as you write, family bridges. So how then, on this 2015 celebration of the King legacy, mm-hmm. do we begin to frame a, a, a safe haven of allies who are our, who should be our allies we should be first of all each other's comrades brothers and sisters in struggle we should understand that when we say black lives matter that means all black lives matter It's kind of ridiculous for black people to be wedged by ageism since the entire black community is under assault. And I must tell you that there's a great divide behind that fence between generations. One of the terrible things that happened, as you know, 
with the criminalization of African-American people and most particularly African-American youth, we were told that they were criminals and animals who deserved to be locked up. And many people said that if they do the crime, then they must do the time without even understanding that the criminal justice system is not that equal, that, in fact, many white young people do the same crime and don't do the time. And so we didn't fight. We didn't see that we were developing, that this country was developing a locked-down, locked-up, shoot-em-out society. And so one of the things that I see behind the fist is a misunderstanding of movement, a misunderstanding that movement belongs to any one generation. Movement belongs to everybody until the day you take your last breath. And even when you are dead, the movement belongs to you based on the work that you've done when you were alive to make it happen. This whole notion of something belonging to one generation and struggle over another generation comes from the comes from white supremacy. The whole Oedipal notion of the son slaying the fathers for power. We cannot afford to do that with each other. We have to work together collectively. We cannot position one generation over the other and tell young people, oh, we're so proud of you for what you're doing. Well, I'm happy that young folks are putting their patch on the quilt, but it's not for, they're fighting for themselves as much as other people are fighting for themselves. So to say I'm proud sort of conveys that they're doing something for someone else and not for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. matter of their own survival that they do this work. It is a necessity that they do this work, not for themselves. Let me tell you why it's a necessity. This is the great secret that has broken my heart. Many of the young activists in Ferguson, in in in, in Chicago, in Atlanta, they're homeless. They're sleeping in their cars. And black people don't have a clue that this issue has crept into, that black homelessness of young people is a critical issue for the 21st century. With the high mm-hmm. unemployment rate, we don't make a connection between the, the high unemployment rate and homelessness. We are telling these young people what great heroes and heroines they are without understanding that they're upset, that they feel deserted because they're sleeping in their cars. They don't even know from one day to the next, many of them, where they're going to eat. We just took a young man food tonight. This And so how can a people be that unaware of the realities of their children's lives mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. be in some fantasy of the great American dream. So the, what makes them glorious is the fact that despite these challenges, 
they are struggling and trying to build a better world. That's what makes them glorious, that they have not been beaten down by the adversity of not having jobs, not having food, being uh, not having money to go to school. This generation, and this, so we talk about Black Lives Matter, but we don't say that there needs to be a national agenda that deals with the lives of young people because these young people, many of them, will live 50 years, 60 more years. And unless something changes drastically, they are facing bleak, Mm-hmm. Bleak lives, without. I mean, you get a. We have young people we know working, have BA degrees, and are working in warehouses, lifting cartons, and black adults are totally oblivious to this reality. Wow. This is what we're dealing with. I was stunned because I have to be honest to everybody out there. I'm not saying anything about you that I'm not saying about myself because I knew the statistics, but I never made the connection between high unemployment and homelessness among African-American young people. I never mm-hmm. realized that they were the last hired and the first, the, the last hired and the first fired, that we're right back to where we were. BJ, mm-hmm. it's really, it's, it's, it is devastating when you start putting together the reality. Ohio is one of the states was one of the worst public school systems for African American young people. It has the highest number rate of unemployment. And guess what? One of the highest numbers of state sanctioned murders. We've got to look at what is going on here. What is what undergirds the white supremacy and the terrorism today. What is Mm -hmm. going on in the Midwest, Milwaukee, where these murders are very high, in areas where once upon a time were were highly industrialized areas when black people served a function for white economy. And now that there is no function, we are hunted down, and they use violence to hold us in control. Mm Mm-hmm. We are up against some things that we have not begun to think about. So in order to to diminish, to dismantle white supremacy, we have to take the work seriously. White, this is serious business that mm-hmm. requires mm-hmm. serious thinking. It's like playing chess. You have to be able to to strategically make a move. You're not dealing with folks who are who are reasonable. They're utilizing all of their resources to maintain white supremacy and the system of military, domestic militarism and to make sure that there will not be a generation of educated young black people anymore. This is what we're facing. We wow. are these young people are facing a devastating life. And here we are holding them up as heroes on the one hand and they're invisible on the other. Well, you know that I am an advocate for having working groups at the local level looking at some of this. I mean, 
I happen to be a resident of Boston. It's just a northern plantation, folks. And <laughs> and recently, uh, <laughs> recently we we did build in Massachusetts under the leadership of um, the former governor um, Deval Patrick homeless centers just for homeless teens. And I think that there has been so much emphasis placed on special groups, but there is not enough emphasis on what is happening to black seniors, black teenagers who are homeless. There's not enough emphasis placed on the specialized area of domestic and intimate partner violence in the black community. We are getting the same, um, and in many cases, nothing. So <sighs> I, I continue to beat the drum, folks, that if anything is going to happen, we have got to turn inward. We've got to not worry about who's in the White House, not worry about who's in the Congress. Now who's going to get We've the Academy Award and who was snubbed. Exactly. Um, so because that is where the dots can be connected. Our children are not being terrorized by police officers nationally. They are being terrorized by police officers where we live. And we let so, them. And we let them. Exactly, Ruby. We let them. So we debate. I just, one of the things that has really struck me this week is all of the conversation about the fact that Selma, that the Academy, that the movie was snubbed and it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. While I think we have to look at that as a movement in terms of white supremacy, as an indicator of white supremacy, I think that I'm more worried about a nine-year-old child who gets put in handcuffs on a playground because he's acting normal, or a six-year-old black girl in kindergarten who gets hauled out in handcuffs and taken to jail and put in a cell because she was having a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. we've got to prioritize people. Why are yeah, we concerned yeah. about someone's career and not about our children collectively? What kind of people would let people put handcuffs on their children? Come on yes. now, let's get real. We have got to get real. Ruby, we only have a few more minutes, and one of the things that I I, I want you to talk about uh, is to update us on your project relative to the modern, modern-day lynching statistics. Please do that. Well, we have a, a, a Facebook page called Breaking Silence on Modern Day Lynchings, and we started documenting the state-sanctioned murders in 2007 when nobody wanted to hear us say this, and everybody was saying, many people were saying that we were racist, that none of this was happening in America, and we were just living back in the, back in the day. And we have built this Facebook page that documents all of the state-sanctioned murders in this country. And what I like about it is that it's an open page for anybody 
who wants to add a posting on that page. It's not just Spirit House doing this. It's participatory democracy. People are doing this. So you can get a sense of the wide range of brutality and violence and murder that police are involved in today. And you can go to the to, to the Facebook, Breaking the Silence on Morning Day Lynching. And we have documented about a 1,000 cases since 2007 that we will be turning into a coffin project, and, and I'll talk more about that later. But we really think that it's really important for people to really know about the lives of these people, to know that they were human beings, to know that they were loved, and to see the ways in which their lives were just wiped out in the most vicious and most excessive firing squad kind of way that's possible. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I want to remind people in this regard is that we have a very high level of missing black people and children in this country. Yes. And one of the things that we need to be asking ourselves is what kind of resources are being used and put in the in the in the finding of these people and second whether or not there is some link between the system of white supremacy white terrorism that's going on in this country and the growing number of missing black people you got to think about that it that is a big question in Jacksonville Florida that's becoming a growing issue there uh, and I think we need to begin to really take a look at that. And if I have one more moment, this is what I want to say. I want to encourage every black person under the sound of my voice to have a vision, not of a downtrodden race where we cannot protect our children, but I want us to remember that we have come from a mighty people who survived enslavement and the hellhole of apartheid, that we have what it takes to be victorious. And I'm asking each of you tonight to commit in whatever way you can to becoming a part of a movement that says that black life matters in every aspect of our lives. Absolutely. I beg you. Ruby, how can people contact you at the Spirit House Project in Atlanta? They can contact me at www.spirithouseproject.org, or they can uh, write me at spirithousedc at aol.com, or info at spirithouseproject.org. Great. Spirit, uh, info at spirithouseproject.org. Dot org. Ruby, Ruby Sales, thank you so very much for your brilliance, your 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 persistence, and in, in critically thinking about how we become bold and brave in 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 this struggle. I thank really you so do much for appreciate. Well, we we certainly will have you more uh, during this season as we continue to talk about 
the spirit in the spirit of a Sankofa. Ruby Thank Sales, you. you're you're listening to our common ground. I'm Janice Graham and we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna be meeting with our brother Max Parthas of the new abolitionist radio program at Black Talk Network. Good night. Stay tuned. Good night, Ruby, and thank you so very much. Stay tuned, and um, while we're on break, email a friend and have them join us at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. A climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety and without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. When the war is won, we will be sure, we will be Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. What we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this economy. And these people are sabotaging this country. On TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. All across America, people dream of home ownership. Your race, national origin, color of your skin should not affect your dream of owning a home. All too often, lenders target minorities and minority communities with bad loan products, destroying dreams and ruining lives. Lending discrimination is unlawful. If you believe a lender has targeted you with a bad loan, call HUD at 1-800-669-9777. Or go to HUD's website, hud.gov forward slash fairhousing. HUD. One call. Many answers. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw. Right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Hi, my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio. 
every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., the I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show, baby. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Broadcasting bold, free, and black. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as the great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. Is not free. Is not free. Join the nation on Monday in celebration, a teach-in, a learn-in, some kind of be-in on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King on this Monday, even though his birthday was on Thursday. In the second hour, in our second page, 
we're going to be talking with Max Parthas. He is the host of the New Abolitionists radio network, in addition to his broadcasting. He's a word warrior, spoken word artist, an activist, a freedom fighter, a free thinker, and abolitionist. He is a visionary who doesn't mind speaking his mind and facing the ugly truths of modern-day slavery head-on via the use of public platforms such as social media, broadcast radio, spoken word poetry, and videography. He endeavors to enlighten and educate by gifting his audiences with poetic images that leave them searching for truth. He is an in-your-face honesty and passion act as a double-edged sword that will force you to open your eyes and see the world for what it is. And we are so pleased to be able to have Max Parthas join us this evening on this sacred ground of black truth. Max, thank you so very much for joining us, my brother, and welcome to Our Common Ground. Thank you very much. It's it's good to be here on your first broadcast of the year. Uh, Amazing. I'm truly honored, particularly to be here with Sister uh, Ruby Sales. That is uh, also a huge honor. Thank you very much. She's just just absolutely awesome. I mean, you know, some people go through life and they learn very little. I Ruby Sales is a person who has learned so much in her journey, and she is so eloquent as she shares what she has cultivated in the notions and experiences. And we we really we we love her. Ruby and I have been comrades for a very 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 long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody I'm having a birthday next week because oh, it is really well. Thank you. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out for my friends: am I the oldest or the youngest? Um, but I have become, I have just taken on the role of matriarch in my family, mm. and um, for so long I was the youngest. But Max, tell us about your work and this whole. And and I I need to talk to you about this whole idea of Black Lives Matter. What yes. from your experience and as a broadcaster are you understanding? And how do we lend our voices to maintaining a momentum? and doing deeper work to ensure that Black Lives Matter. Because the first time I saw it, I said to myself, to whom? When I see black boys dead in the street, I want to know to who. Yes, I understand where you're coming from. Um, You know, for us as abolitionists, we fight against modern-day slavery, and that is the antithesis of Black Lives Matter. It's basically saying black lives are nothing more than commodities to be thrown into prisons. People can exploit them and send them out to work for free and and make money on that and just arrest them for the most mundane things and treat them like chattel slavery. And that's the problem that we face today. Uh, You know, there was a big argument recently because people tend to run out with these signs saying all lives matter. Well, that kind of peed me off, you know, I'm sure it peed off a few other people when they see that. 
I've been to a few marches where these white people run around with these signs and say something like that, and someone asked me, how do I feel about that? So I did write a little something about that. It's just a quote. If you don't mind, I'll read it to you. From my sure. perspective, Black Lives Matter seems to be self-evident as a reply to the historical, statistical, legal, and social false assertions that they do not matter. And so hijacking this message because you feel left out of the genocidal fund is the equivalent of all cancer research institutes except those who fight breast cancer receiving full federal funding for an R&D of a solution. You know, I heard a professor of African history say recently, people want everything from black culture except the burden. And that turns out to be true. <clears throat> so Black Lives Matter, as I said, is self-evident. It's an assertion that, it, that our lives do matter. But really, unless we face the biggest foe that we have always had, then it's really going to be hard to make any major changes. I've heard on the show several phrases that came out, you know, like, uh, we need to challenge our thinking, we need a fundamental change, and we need new notions. Well, I'm here with that today. You see, one of the things that I have been, I went from last year thinking it's time for me to get the hell on out of here to this year thinking um, we need to, to, to find a colony. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that myself. My wife and I considered moving to Canada at one point. Like, oh, my God, but... There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere you can hide, nowhere Thank to run. You. The whole world is under this circumstance. We recently found out that in France, with all the things going on in France, that 60 to 70, 70% of their prison population are Muslims. Now, we've seen yes. that happen somewhere else. Yes, yes. And uh, as I have been saying, je ne pas uh, Charlie, um, with 2,000 Nigerians being murdered and we haven't sent the first drone. Uh, but anyway, I digress. So you're, in thinking about the phrases that you've heard tonight and the things that you hear from your audiences, what are your responses to where do we begin to really activate, enact Black Lives Matter? Because when I see 50 black people standing behind a police line while a young boy lies in the street for four hours dead, it, it kind of makes me crazy about who we are as a people. And I look at my, my history and think, that 50 years ago, that simply would not have happened. There would have been a riot. Well, actually, it would have happened 50 years ago, and it did happen. But oftentimes, we didn't have video cameras like we do today so people would know about it. So it was very much covered up or kept locally, so the people only there often knew about it. But a tragedy like that has been going on throughout our history. And every 50 years, uh, as a, uh, a cycle, we tend to go through the same fight over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, 1865, 1950, 1965, uh, you know, just on and on. So we expect to be able to, I don't expect to have to fight the same fight again in 2065. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that I took 
my 21-year-old and my 13-year-old grandchildren to see Selma last weekend. And they, their first reactions, both of them said nothing has changed. Yeah, I, I agree. I saw it myself, and nothing has changed. But we can make a change, and it often, as always, starts within our own minds. We have to change our mind. And the thing that we do on New Abolitionist Radio is try to change people's mind. We have to stop looking at all of these symptoms that we're dealing with, which is mass incarceration, police brutality, injustice in the courts and systems, and the way we're being treated uh, overall by white supremacy and the uh, European populace as not just individual battles we have to fight, but one single battle, the same battle we've always fought, which is slavery. Uh, just this last year in 2014, 23.4 million people went through our justice systems, whether they were in jails or prisons or under observation by the justice system. And every one of them was making money on someone. Just in New York alone, uh, for instance, we recently discovered that to arrest and incarcerate a teenager for an entire year is $352,000 of taxpayers' money. 352000 for one year to incarcerate a teenager who might not have had two cents in his pocket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are the and, issues and, that we need to change. Mm-hmm. Now, in this notion that I have of upending white supremacy, by that, Max, I'm not talking about eliminating it because it's not going to be eliminated. It's a global system. It's it's It's... It's powered by a lot more capital and resources than as a people in this country we will ever have. But I think that there is a way in which we need to upend it so that it has much less impact on our lives. What's your thoughts about that? I think that if we change our minds and stop calling all this stuff I mentioned earlier, what, what we've been calling it, and start calling it slavery, that alone will change how we address it. That alone mm-hmm. will change how we fight it. That alone will change how we see it. But we keep making up all these words and, and, and describing it of different occasions like, oh, it's Jim Crow. Oh, no, it's not Jim Crow. It's peonage. Oh, no, it's a convict leasing. It's slavery happening right in front of our eyes, being exploited by prisons who are using the 13th Amendment uh, exception clause of the United States Constitution and had always been using it. You know, in the 60s, during the Civil Rights era, they didn't have to face this because there wasn't 2.4 million people in prison at the time, with more than half of them being people of color. So they didn't have to deal with that. At that time, there was about 230 or 240,000 prisoners nationwide, and convict leasing had just ended in Mississippi in 1928. But now in this generation, we have a whole new battle that we have to fight that has never been seen before in the history of man at this level, 23.4 million people going through our jails and prisons, and every one of them are creating a profit. So... I think that simply by changing our mind and looking at this in a different way is the fundamental change we've been looking for. I had a historic meeting on Martin Luther King's birthday with the Quakers. It was probably the first time since the 1800s that slavery abolitionists and Quakers got together to talk about these issues. 
Star, I was really taken aback by the historical weight of it all. But apparently the Quakers already have a huge system set up throughout the country, uh, including uh, 20 or 30 different prisons that they're working within to try to make changes, primarily, uh, I think, because they feel kind of responsible for the way the prisons are today because they help design them the way they yes. are today. And not only are they intersecting at the pri- uh, prison industrial complex, they're also intersecting at the educational uh, complex. There are Quaker-funded school, private schools all over this country where black children are being educated free in in a first cl- in a first class educational system. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Quakers have always been an ally ally in this fight, and um, as of Martin Luther King's birthday, 2015, I'm hoping that they will become uh, our allies again in this fight. And I asked them the same thing I asked people here on your show today to stop calling it mass incarceration and start calling it slavery. That is the fundamental change that will change everything right there. Because then you're talking about something that's illegal, immoral, unethical, and in every land in the world, it is against the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and an example of that is how corporate entities can go into prisons and get and use it as free labor and pay uh, just a small fee to the prison, but not to the prison. Yes, and that is happening at an exponential rate. As of 2013, 37 states signed legislation that will allow private prisons to use their laborers for labor their prisoners for commercial projects and productions. And uh, we have so many major international corporations right now using prison labor. There's almost a million prisoners employed right now. And I've personally seen commercials from the prisons themselves where they're asking private industry to come and use their labor using uh, slogans like, our people are always here on time. They never have a day off. They don't have babysitting issues, and you don't have to worry about anything. And these are people that mm-hmm. may work 30 years of their life for 11 cents an hour and have nothing when it's done. As a matter of fact, when they get out, they're often in debt because they have to make loans while they're in jail just to be paid for the things that they need to exist while in jail. And the same corporations will never employ them. Exactly. Like the California Mm -hmm. uh, situation that we've recently noticed, California was ordered to release a certain number of prisoners, I believe it was 4,400, because they were operating at 155% capacity. The Supreme Court ordered that they release these people. The lawyers representing the prison industry came out and said that they couldn't do that because they would lose almost a billion dollars in wage uh, fees. What they were doing Mm -hmm. is, in California, a lot of the prisoners actually go out and fight the forest fires, the brush fires, all of these fires that California deals with. Well, Mm -hmm. many of the people Mm -hmm. fighting it are prisoners earning $2 a day. But the people who supervise them are working there making fifty and $60,000 a, a year, whereas mm-hmm. the people who are fighting it are $2 a day. So that right there tells you what their interests are all about. Well, it really, it really locks into what you said previously, and that is that we've got to rethink so much of this because – Y'all could call me and email me and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know you're sitting there and you are the people, many of you who are saying, oh, that's a good deal because the prisoners get to learn skills. 
But when they come out of the prison, they can't use those skills because nobody will hire them because that is how the justice system is set up. And the other thing, Max, that you're talking about is we have charter schools that are nothing but patty rollers, if we're going to call this a slavery system. That's right. That's right. It changes everything you you know about the system when you change how you see it. That's the fundamental change that we have to get in our heads. And then we can start pursuing criminal prosecutions of slavers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like getting mm-hmm, them out of mm-hmm. positions where they're actually exercising these things. Like in Mississippi right now, the entire state is under investigation because the longest-running commissioner for the state of Mississippi's prison systems right now is indicted for charges of corruption. Indicted, that could get exactly. Them up to 389 the same man years. who made the decision to keep one of the Scots, Jamie Scott, in prison, which caused her to be almost deathly ill because she needed a kidney transplant and he wouldn't allow her to be cared for outside the prison system. That's the same guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just that's a tame story compared to some that that I've heard. We had George Mallincrott from the Florida State Prisons. He was a psychotherapist there on our show last week and we talked about the Darren Rainey uh circumstance in Florida prisons where they took this man Darren Rainey and they put the guards put him in a scalding hot shower and boiled him to death until his skin fell off and then made other prisoners come and clean it up. Uh, there's still been nobody prosecuted behind that, and, and Florida alone is a uh, is a genocide going on. They have 346 prisoners that have recently died that are listed on yes. the Florida website that are directly related to guards killing them. Yes, yes. I I, I don't know what you do for Florida. I I really don't. In 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 a lot of ways, uh, it is the land of it's just it's just uncivilized in its government entities, uh, in its policies, and no one seems to be doing much uh, in terms of challenging the laws and the policies that are used, and especially in this kind of uh, prison terrorism that's been going on. And I mean, and and that's one story. Two years ago, didn't they find like 146? Uh, bodies on the land yes. where previously it was a school, <coughs> a detention school yes. or something. That was um, a Catholic, uh, a Catholic boarding <coughs> school where they found several hundred bodies buried there. Excuse me. And so I don't, you know, and it goes back to what Ruby Seals was saying. Who are we as a people when we continue to allow these kinds of of things to to persist and exist, um, and it continues to rob us of our humanity. Um, we know that predatory lending, like payday loans, um, high interest rate mortgages, high interest rate loans, that black people are the targets of the predators. They advertise on TV. They get, um, at the local level, they get to be treated as though they're they're corporate leaders in the community. They'll probably all be at the NAACP dinner and lunch you all are going to on on, on Monday. So, I I when when you say 
how we get our people to rethink these things. How successful do you think we are? Uh, and does the life does does black talk matter? Absolutely. Uh, it's very important that we start sharing these ideas and moving uh, each other towards a realization. So us out here talking and speaking on these matters is very important. Not to mention, it's creating a form of energy. You know, all of these people out there on the streets marching and protesting together is a form of energy. And right now, there are many entities who are looking to control the narrative that is being presented. And we have to be very careful about how our narrative is being presented. You know, with us, we want to show people that this is a single problem, and the problem is legalized slavery through the 13th Amendment Exception Clause being used by not only private prisons, but also federal prisons in a prison-for-profit punishment-for-sale scheme that earns them almost half a trillion dollars a year. So controlling the narrative is very important. Like the narrative we're hearing primarily right now is reform or no reform, which sounds like a no, you know, like you don't have much of a choice. Go with the reform. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's better mm-hmm, than no reform. Mm-hmm. But we don't hear nobody mentioning abolition. See, abolition is anathema to what these people are doing, so they will do anything they can to control the narrative and keep abolition out of the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me ask you, who would you say to our audience tonight are the modern-day abolitionists? Well, in addition to our own group, which now uh, we have over 1,200 members on Facebook alone, and I personally know that there's at least 10,000 abolitionists out there that I went out and talked to on my own with my wife. But, excuse me, but also there are organizations that are out there freeing people who have been falsely uh, incarcerated or are facing death row uh the innocence project would be one yes. and we call them uh-huh. conductors of the underground railroad because they are literally freeing people from death and bondage not mental slavery physical slavery so they're pulling mm-hmm. these people out of these prisons in numbers we never imagined in 2013 i believe it was the uh record for exonerations and that was over 13 Hundred and in 2014 they surpassed that. I suspect that 2015 will be even more so. So we're showing these are the abolitionists of the day. They're getting people out of these jail cells and these prison cells who were innocent to begin with, and also they're spreading the message of abolitionism that we don't need private prisons. We shouldn't have them. They should be illegal. They are uh, uh, you know human rights violators of the highest level. So they should mm-hmm. be abolished and banned. And we know also that 70% of the prison population is nonviolent drug-related charges. So that's at least 70% of the prison population that we have in our federal prisons that should be released. People who are in there for drugs, whether if they're addicted, for instance, don't need to be incarcerated. They need help with their addiction. They have no business being in there except other to be tortured and warehoused so these prisons can make money on them. You know, it's really interesting uh, that we are talking about the privatization of American prisons. That was the first show that we did in 2014. <laughs> See? See? And here we are right back again. We're going to keep fighting. You know, and, and, you know, I um, I had um, people were have been emailing me and asking me why I was remiss in coming back on the air, and part of it was that 
I was trying to structure what will we do this year uh, with this program, and I couldn't quite, you know, this is my 31st broadcast year, and I couldn't quite think, how do I avoid talking about something that I've already talked about and covered? And it took me about two weeks to figure out how 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 try, how to try to do this, but it is it is true we have been talking about um this Michelle Alexander book the new Jim Crow and the mass incarceration of African Americans we've been talking about it now for three or four years and nothing has changed and new private prisons are being built all across this country. And we're seeing terrorism and tragedy coming out of our prisons, and nothing has changed. Max, I'm not sure if we have enough resources. For instance, you mentioned the, the Innocence Project. There should be an Innocence Project that's, that is is funded in every state in this country. Their backlog is so large that they are rendered crippled. Yeah, just even trying if they to find out who was conductors. innocent from the Andy Dugan case is more than anybody can handle. Right. So, um how how do we begin how do we begin to get our people you know you all stop giving to the I I can't say give blood to the Red Cross, don't give them money. Uh, I mean, we give to all these places um, instead of donating old clothing to Goodwill. Take them to a secondhand store and sell them, and send the money to a place like the Innocence Project. We've got yes. to do do things different. Oprah could fund the Innocence Project across the entire country just by herself if she wanted to. So, could so, write letters to Oprah and say, Oprah, okay, give all the money that you made from the movie Selma and the movie Beloved and give it to the Innocence Project. Right, or and other organizations say, like them. Yeah. So, I just, you know, and, and then in in terms of how we try to propel and gain Re- and tinker, tinker the thinking of our people on this independent radio. None of us are getting rich at all. <clears throat> so, I'm wondering if we need to help people understand. You have no local talk radio. Our people don't have any local talk radio. I mean, WOL is still there in DC. But if you go down the coast of Florida in the market that I used to be in, there's there's no black community uh, radio anymore. It's all well, gone. You know, all of the media is controlled only by six corporations, and of those six corporations, about 150 executives sit around and make decisions about what everybody, uh, maybe 4.5 billion people across the planet are going to view or hear. Uh-huh. So uh, it's kind of... Uh, obvious why black media is being uh, 
systematically taking off of the air and off of the market. We don't have it like we used to. A lot of independent programs have been birthed, a lot of them. Yours, for instance, and the one that we're doing as well with Black Talk Radio Network. So I guess we'll have to start creating our own, like we've always done, and uh, mm-hmm. competing in these markets. Well, I certainly hope we, that we do it very quickly. Our number is 347-838-9852. We are talking with Max Parthas, the host of The New Abolitionists on Black Talk Radio Network, and we invite you to join us in this conversation about upending white supremacy. How do we rethink those things which operate as immediate oppressive tools against us, like we just finished talking about media, like we just finished talking about the prison industrial complex, like we just finished talking about financial institutions. One of the things that we can't be remiss in talking about is how we take care of our least, the least of us, poor people, our seniors, our children, and our schools. I don't know about you, Max, but I grew up in Jim Crow South, and I went to uh, independent black school until it was time for me to go to the first grade. And by the time I got to the first grade, I could read at a fourth grade level because that's what, what was expected and that's how it worked right now we live in communities where there is no independent black education and please don't call three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two and tell me about your child goes to the y because unless you have some money for your child to participate in special programs at the y they play basketball I just had to throw that in, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to repeat. You know, I'm a broken record, and it's very important that I keep repeating this. If you want to upend white supremacy and slavery, that's where all their power comes from. As long as we keep allowing them to continue to operate a legal slave trade where we are the primary commodity that they kidnap on the streets, torture in these jail cells, kill sometimes along the way and then buy and trade and sell us on the open market, we are not going to make much of a change. We're just going to keep putting Band-Aids on big wounds that will continue to bleed. We have to go directly to the root and not address the fruits so much. We'll be doing that forever. But if we ever topple this system of slavery, that is their entire power structure and always has been. Well, there will be people, and I hope that there will be people who tomorrow and Friday will be starting to think about where else is the open market. It's in our prisons. We know that. But there are open markets everywhere. For instance, in our inner cities and urban areas, we have black people who are eating whatever they throw at us in these supermarkets. Mentally Um, Exactly. In our inner cities, we have 
housing situations where our children are, are, are ill from mold, our children are ill from what they hear and what they have to pass by, and that sets them up to join the market that you're talking about, Max. Mm-hmm. So give us an idea of how we begin come an abolitionist. Okay, uh I'll use three presidents to show you how we came to be where we're at today. Becoming an abolitionist is not anything like going out and filling out some forms or joining some kind of group or something like that. It's an ideal, an ideal that we can have a nation that slavery, legalized slavery, does not exist in. That's the ideal that we had, and abolition includes so many different types of people doing different types of things, from examples like Harriet Tubman, who physically and wearing rags went out with a gun and rescued people to people like uh, John Brown and also other abolitionists like Frederick Douglass. They all did different things, but they were all together on the same fight. So the three points in history uh, would be examples with presidents. Lincoln, first of all. Lincoln ran on the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. We've traced the 13th Amendment all the way back to 1841 in Ohio. That was his first appearance when they used it there for the same reason. So Lincoln knew exactly what he was doing. At that time, the idea wasn't how do we end slavery. It was how do we not end slavery and make them think we did. And the way to do that was to stop calling them slaves and start calling them criminals. So the first prison in South Carolina, for instance, the first federal prison was built in 1866, and the Black Codes immediately began. So the state took up to where, from where the individual slave owner could no longer do it. Now, after that, mm-hmm. we didn't see much of a, a large increase of the population of the prisons until later on with Nixon. Nixon started the War on Drugs in the 70s. Now, the War on Drugs was a direct reply to the movement of the 60s. And then we started seeing this mass incarceration uh, era begin with Nixon and his war on drugs. Then along came the third one, which I want to point out, is Ronald Reagan. When Ronald Reagan became president, one of the things he did was introduce the first private prisons. Now, between the times of Nixon and now, we went from 230, 240,000 prisoners nationwide to the 2.4 million we see today, which is the largest prison population in the history of the entire world. We have 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the prisoners, which means everywhere across the world, wherever there's a prison, one out of every four is in our prisons right here. And one state, Louisiana, is literally the prison capital of the entire world. So those three points right there, coming to understand how we came to be at this point, from the original bamboozlement to the exploitation opened up by Ronald Reagan, is a big change in understanding, again. And to become an abolitionist, the first thing you got to do is get out your head that slavery ever ended at any point in time. There is no point in time where you can point to that day and say slavery ended that day. Even the president of the United States, Barack Obama, sat before a classroom full of students and explained to them that he has the Emancipation Proclamation on his wall right behind his desk, and he sees it every day. And he told them how the uh, brunt of that Emancipation Proclamation addresses those states and places that did not have to uh, release their slaves. 
So the mm-hmm. two linchpins of our freedom are both lies. And that is the thing we have to get out of our head. We have to stop just accepting the idea that slavery ended when it never did. And we could prove that. I challenge anybody, anybody, any intellectual out there to come and show me when slavery ended, because it didn't. Now, what what is the reaction to overall to to this concept of um, slavery as a pure form still in existence? Well, I guess the reaction is going to be a lot of different ideas. But the first thing we got to do, as I said, is get that out of our head. And then the second thing we got to do is start uh, looking at the people who are continuing the practice of state slavery and exploiting the practice of slavery as criminals. We have to, we, we can't, mm-hmm. how did he, uh, it was said, uh, there should be no union with slaveholders is, I believe that was a statement that was made many years ago by the, uh, original, uh, founder of the liberator magazine, uh, Lloyd mm-hmm. William Garrison. <clears throat> we Garrison. Have no union mm-hmm. with slaveholders. Well, that's what we've got. We've got a union with slaveholders. We're sitting yeah. here talking to people who are turning us into slaves and using us as nothing more than cash machines and generators and asking them to sit down at a table and negotiate with us. And that doesn't make yeah. any sense whatsoever. So we have to hold these people responsible. And it's especially shameful when the people who are in charge of these situations are people of color. Right now, the head of all the prisons across the United States is a black man. The head of yeah. the uh, Justice Department is a black man. The president is a black man. Now, between those, just those three, I could go on with other names, but just those three, at least one of them should be able to stand up and say, hey, this is wrong. It's affecting mm-hmm. far too many of my people, and we need to address this immediately, right now, because it's a matter of life and death. Yeah. We've got a caller, Max, who wants to talk with you about this. 773, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening to you, yes. Alpha of the Alpha Show. <laughs> um, I want to say that <clears throat> in listening to the conversation, you're absolutely correct. But, <clears throat> Max, when you say we should call it slavery, that's simply introducing a new word. Because just like we were called Negroes, then we changed it to African-American, then we changed it to black, and now it's back to African-American. We are still going to have people who will call it what they want. Just like we are going to have people who will either call it the new Jim Crow, who will call it whatever they want. That simply adds confusion to the entire uh, mix of things. But you're absolutely right. That's what it is. It's a new form of slavery. So do you add new slavery there? So when you were explaining it as you so eloquently did this evening, and you're, like I said, again, you're absolutely correct. But when you also have people speaking about the elders should step back and let the young people take up this movement, you see, what we fail to identify is the fact that they adjust to our pushback. And as they adjust to our pushback, we don't adjust and we don't push back 
in a different way. We speak about how Oprah could fund the Innocence Project. But Oprah doesn't have a political agenda, a political mindset. Oprah's only mindset was to be a success at what she was doing and what she has done. And now that she has achieved her success, she really, no one has sat down with Oprah and tried to explain to her her importance in this entire scheme of things, simply by her having the finances. The same thing is true for all of the other rich African-American people. And I, I call them rich, I should say wealthy. See, wealthy whites have an agenda, a political agenda, like the Koch brothers, they're libertarians. They were indoctrinated in their youth and they grew up with a political agenda. And this is what they've carried through. By them owning and funding over 85 different think tanks, they are putting their money into a process that will achieve their agenda. Oprah doesn't have that type of agenda. All Oprah knows is she is very successful. She is more likely than not to be on the business end of litigation for whatever reason, and there's a defense mechanism there. So when we begin to speak about our plight, our situation, I'll simply say this. The money is stacked against us. The laws are stacked against us. The judges, the politicians. This is going to take, this is going to be more than just a heavy lift. Our youth don't know and don't understand their history, and they don't care. They have an idolatry to gym shoes and reality programs. They simply sit by and, like a cow staring at a passing train, it has absolutely no effect on the masses. There are quite a few of us who understand what's going on, but the masses have no idea, and they have turned into a collective of uh, cows, cattle, if you will, just to, if I could use that as a metaphor. It, it, and it's absolutely, it's close to being hopeless because we don't have a sense of we don't have a sense of togetherness. We will you put enough of us together and a big fight breaks out over who's gonna get credit or who's gonna you know stand who's gonna be the leader. And that and Alpha, let's lies get a problem. Let's get a response from Max. We've only got a a, a little bit of time to I think that this is a, a discussion that's worth having so that we can rethink how we think about new concepts. Max, you want to respond well, to Alpha? I appreciate uh, you uh, putting in your input, and thank you for saying that I was right about it. Uh, as I said earlier, I challenge anybody to disprove us that slavery never ended, and they won't be able to. Uh, we've collected some of the, the largest uh, amounts of evidence of modern-day slavery probably in the nation right now in our archives at New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, you mentioned earlier about you know someone saying that the elders should move aside. Well, I don't think that they should move aside at all, but I do think that they need to understand that this fight that their children uh, are facing are is not the same fight that they faced. 
So it may not be one in the same fashion. As I said, that's 2.4 million people in prison didn't exist in the 60s. This is a whole new phenomenon. So we have to, maybe our elders need to rethink what it is they're viewing and, and, and help in that way. But I'm an elder myself, and I'm out there all the time um, helping these kids as much as possible across the country. And you also mentioned that the youth don't care and there's no effect on the masses. And I don't see it that way because my wife and I go from state to state to state, and we've been doing it for many years working with uh, people that were maybe 10 or 12 years old when we first were exposed to them. And then nowadays they're out there in the streets marching because they understand so much more than people give them credit for. There may be a lot of out there who don't know and aren't aware but I'm working with the ones that do, and there are a lot of them out there, a lot of young, bright kids who see these things in a very new way. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, we need to find a new way of thinking about it ourselves. And I think that they've already started doing that. So they may be a step ahead of us on that area. And uh, You're absolutely also, right. Right. And you also mentioned, though, know, like Oprah not being political. Well, Oprah helped elect the president. She was pretty political at that time when she did it. So if she's willing to go that far, maybe somebody have a conversation with her about modern-day slavery, which I doubt somebody has to date, because it's not like everybody's sitting around talking about modern-day slavery. It's a whole new concept, apparently. You know, But maybe if somebody talked to her about it, she might be willing. And the other people with all the money out there. You know, we've been bamboozled for a long time. So it's no shame to say you didn't know or you didn't understand. When I go to different places and have abolitionist meetings or anti-slavery meetings, I can see it in the people's eyes where they go, oh, my God, I knew that all along. I just didn't put mm -hmm. the pieces together like that. And I see that happening across the country. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, Max, tell our audience how they can listen to the new abolitionists uh, on black Talk Radio Network. Yes, please. You can go to blacktalkradionetwork.com and just click the drop-down menu for New Abolitionist Radio, or you can listen to our archives as well at uh, New Abolitionist Radio, that's plural, Abolitionist Radio, at uh, blogs, newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. And we have this huge archives there. Uh, after one or two shows, you'll probably be just completely convinced and become an abolitionist. And that's what we need, more abolitionists. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about myself and my wife, Tribal Rain, uh, we've been in the spoken word community now for almost 20 years. We've helped uh, as architects of what we now know as our spoken word community. And you can find us at MaximumImpactPoetry.com. Well, we certainly um, thank you and have been honored to be able to talk with you about your work. Uh, for those of you who have not heard, you can go to Our Common Ground uh, on Facebook and listen to some of the spoken word work that Max Parthas has done. Max, let's stay in touch. Let's um, let's do this often. Well, thank when, you when for you, having me on the show. I really appreciate you. Now, do you have a particular time that you do live broadcasts? 
When is yes, that? Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Uh, to 10 p.m. So we do a two-hour show every Wednesday live. And if you want to call into the show, uh, you can call in the show and add your thoughts. And if you hear something that it tells you, you know what, I need to become an abolitionist, today is the day that I begin to fight slavery and stop fighting all the symptoms of slavery, call us and let us know. We love to hear those type of revelations and epiphanies that people have. And we've been seeing them happening over and over again. As I said, it's clearly in our face what's occurring. We constantly describe the symptoms. We just don't put it all together. Somebody, you know, once in a while has to come along and say, here's the link you need. And everything after that is clear as day. Well, yeah, we've got to collect ourselves and rethink how we connect the dots. Max Parkes, thank you so very much, and thanks to, to Scotty Reed for the work that he does over in um, uh, Ms. Whitlock over at uh, Black Talk Network. Yes, um, I would be remiss not to give a shout-out to Scotty Reed and Johanna and Elijah. Those are my comrades and co-hosts on New Abolitionist Radio, and they are doing, they're giving their lives for this cause, just like all the rest of us are. Well, we, we appreciate all of the talk that matters across the spectrum of independent talk radio, and you're right. Uh, I've been associated with Black Talk Network from the very beginning, and uh, the work has increased, and it has become deeper and more important. Max, thanks a lot, and we look forward to having you as an Our Common Ground voice join us again. Indeed. Happy New Year's to you, Janice. Thank you. Uh, that's all, folks, that we can do for the time that we have. We hope that you'll join us next Saturday here at Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us. So we're, we're dealing with this, and so they have permission, given how people acquiesce to that notion of their security, the enemy without, which is always a uh, an issue in this country. We always have to have an enemy. And so they have permission. All alone, fighting on our own. Please give me a chance. I don't want to dance. Something's got me down. I will stand my ground. Don't just stand around. Don't just stand around. Many thanks. Our listeners callers, and to our guests, Ruby Sales and Max Parthas. We urge you to understand the urgency of the moment. It is only by our hands that we will be free. Don't be afraid to look at your patterns and your pathologies, no matter how old you are, because we've got to make way for the next generation. Some of the stuff that we suffer through, suffer with, suffer in, we need to eliminate it. You can be the one to heal it. You can be the one to lift it up. You can be the one to clear it. You understand? You can be the one. Uh, and it doesn't require anything of you that you don't already have. Thank you for being with us at Our Common Ground. We need and require your support to be brave, bold, and black. I'm Janice Graham. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. No 